bread that's a work of art, tons of kinds of pecorino, and an island where you rarely eat fish. This week, we're in Sardinia, Italy. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is where we try all the dishes the world has to offer at DestinationEatDrink.com and on the Destination Eat Drink podcast. This week, we're exploring Sardinia and the islands of Italy with Katie Parla. But first, if you like foodie travel, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter and keep on top of all the goings-on at Destination Eat Drink. Not just the podcast, but stories from the website and videos, too. You can do that at DestinationEatDrink.com. Katie Parla is an award-winning cookbook author with several titles to her credit, including her latest, Food of the Italian Islands. Katie also offers private tours of her adopted city of Rome, as well as tours of Venice, Naples, Sicily, and Sardinia. Katie also hosts the Gola podcast about Italian food. Katie and I talk about pecorino cheese and pasta in Sardinia, as well as the bread that looks too good to eat. Plus, we talk about the islands in the Bay of Naples and why there are better options than the over-touristed Isle of Capri. And Katie shares the story behind one of the most frugal dishes in Italy. Okay, I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination Eat Drink. Katie Parlow, welcome back to the podcast. Great to have you on Destination Eat Drink. Looking forward to talking to you about the food of the Italian islands. Thanks for having me back. Before we get to your new book, which just came out, I want to talk to you about an article you just published in Savour magazine. Um, it's called Italy's Little Known Trick for Using Up Leftover Bits of Pasta. And I was just intrigued by Pasta Mista Corta. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Pasta Mista Corta translates to... Um, like short mixed pasta. Really, it's it's more like small bits of mixed pasta. So if you're if you're thinking about the literal hundreds of dried pasta shapes, these are the ones like ditali, little lumachine, the ones that are more or less the same size. And in Naples and Campania, the region of which Naples is the capital, there's a custom for using a mixture of different small pasta shapes in soups, um, which is a way to enrich uh, a, a winter uh, minestra or zuppa. And pasta mista corta today is something you'll see sold boxed or bagged in supermarkets, especially in South Central Italy. But historically, you wouldn't have to go look for it in its own packaged form. Um, people would go to the local um, gastronomia, and they would buy the mixture that was essentially created by the owners from leftover little bits, the, the odds and ends left behind after pasta sales, because pasta, uh, was often sold sciolto. So you would go and you would order a certain amount by weight rather than buying a prepackaged, you know, 500 gram box. And this is, uh, this is something that's so present in the Neapolitan tradition. When you go to a trattoria in Naples, especially in the winter months, uh, the odds are you'll find some sort of soup, whether that's with potato and provola, um, or maybe even pasta fagioli. 
that uses these little mixed bits. And it's, it's so, it's so delicious and so nostalgic for a lot of people. This really brings to mind the tradition of a poor person's cuisine. And this is one of the things that I love about Italian cuisine is every last little bit is going to get used up. And hey, when you finish making your pasta, you're going to have those little ends that are left over, those little pieces that didn't quite make it. And they may be misshapen, but they're still tasty. And we are not throwing those out. You know, (laughs) they're going to get used. And so what do you do? You come up with something delicious like pasta mista corta. Yeah, I mean, we know this about all food cultures. Even when people have meager resources, they want their food to be delicious. One way to make a soup delicious is you put pasta in it. And ideally, that pasta is more or less the same size so that it cooks at all at the same rate. And so you get a perfectly al dente pasta in the end. I want to jump into your book because that's why you're here. Your book just got released, Food of the Italian Islands, just came out. Congratulations on that. I know how much heavy lifting goes on to uh, get a book out. And you have kind of been fun with this because on social media, you've kind of been posting each step that you've taken along the way. I mean, you sat yourself down at the printers (laughs) and made sure that, you know, each step was followed correctly and that you got the uh, end result of your book the way that you wanted. So Congratulations on the book, but good on you for, you know, really working hard to make sure that it came out exactly the way that you wanted. Thanks so much. Yeah, I mean, I'm very fortunate in that I am based in Italy where there is still a really strong tradition of artisanship and the typografia, sort of the printing um, art and science is still really present here. Now, granted, most books that are printed in Italy are of huge numbers, right? Um, And they're the ones that you would find in major bookstores, and they're either in the original Italian format or they're translations. But there's also a custom of printing like thesis, uh, Tessie, like your your doctor's thesis. And so there are tons and tons of little shops that do custom covers and all sorts of tailored, bespoke features for books. And the printer that I work with um, connected me with a binder. So in, in when you're producing a book, at least a cookbook, um, in my case, the printer prints the sheets and then the binder folds the sheets, cuts the sheets, and then binds them together and then puts them in the cover. Um, and that is a whole process that happens in the case of Legatoria Bergamasca, the, the binder that I collaborated with, um, happens using machines from the 1960s. And if you visited Italy, you might have noticed a very heavy mid-century modern vibe in brands, uh, like coffee brands, for example, have logos and fonts that really evoke this era, which was truly the heyday in uh, modern printing from an artistic standpoint. And these machines are so durable and they're so uh, well-maintained that I was able to have my book created with these beautiful antiques. Oh, that is so awesome. I'm so glad to hear it. And that's, you know, that mid-century design, not only for printing and for logos and for fonts and for, but all design in Italy. I mean, that was really the heyday. So I'm, I'm glad that you got involved with that. That's so cool. One of the things that struck me, uh, opening your book, and I read it cover to cover, really enjoyed it. Um, one of the things that you say uh, right up front is that 
island cuisine, when we talk about the food of the Italian islands, island cuisine isn't necessarily fish-centric, which might be surprising to some people. It was surprising to me when I, when I first read that, and I had to kind of wrap my head around it. Can you tell uh, our listeners why it is that the island cuisine of Italy is not necessarily fish-centric? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, most people's Italian island experience uh, is with Capri, right? An island that is certainly yes. serving a fish-centric cuisine because it was developed for Anglophone and German tourists in the 19th and 20th centuries. Whereas other islands, and I'm thinking Sicily and Sardinia, which are gigantic ones, but also Ponza and Procida and Ischia, these are places where people have been living for literal millennia and living on the coast wasn't always the safest thing. In fact, fishing, as we know it today, only really develops in the 20th century. Imagine in the 1500s how dangerous it would have been to go out on a fishing boat in the strait between Sicily and Africa and hunt for tuna or swordfish. Super, super dangerous. Plus there were pirates everywhere and in other complexities and invaders. Uh, and so the cultures of the islands, large and small, develops mainly inland where people need to rely on what they can grow and preserve and cellar or the animals that they can raise and then either roast in the case of lambs and mutton um, or cure in the case of pork. And so people had to be really clever about relying on an omnivorous diet that often excluded fresh fish altogether. And if you've ever been to a seaside bar or restaurant anywhere in Italy, you know they're kind of all serving the same stuff. Risotto with fish, spaghetti with clams, fried calamari. And unlike other foods that I know and love in Italy, these don't feel like they're rooted in any specific regional tradition. They more evolve and emerge in the 60s and 70s as people start moving around Italy, traveling, and they want to have some seafood by the sea now that it's finally available. Fresh seafood. Um, and so a kind of generic seaside cuisine develops, and it's delicious, but it's not as though uh, we're talking about a dish like um, spaghetti with botarga, which is clearly rooted in a Sardinian tradition because botarga or gray mullet roe that's been salt cured uh, is produced in Sardinian has been since Carthaginian times and clearly indicates its provenance. I love this idea because all I can imagine is 500 years ago, they're like, the pirates are coming we got to screw to the hills because the coast is just not safe for us, man. And, you know, so we're not going to go fishing. I can breed, you know, sheep or, you know, we can hunt wild boar up here to uh, satisfy our diet. I don't got to go and uh, risk, you know, getting taken by the Barbaries to catch a, to catch a tuna or something like that. Not to mention the fact that it's dangerous in the Mediterranean anyway, you know, whether they're pirates or not. And we have to remember, fish is seasonal often, right? So while there are things that are more abundant in the summertime, there's also there are also a lot of species that are thriving in the winter, and the winter can be really, really unpredictable weather-wise, and that includes waves and winds and all sorts of storms. So it's pretty dangerous stuff. You mentioned Capri, and I, I want to get to that, but first, I'd really like to talk about Sardinia because, just for 
a, a greedy, selfish reason in that I have, me and my girlfriend have wanted to go to Sardinia for a while. We have not made it there yet. And so I would like for you to talk a little bit about Sardinia and maybe start off by making the case to our foodie friends who are listening as to why they should visit Sardinia too. I appreciate your selfishness and in fact is very much in line with my not so subtle agenda to make everyone (laughs) want to go to Sardinia for their next Italy trip. Sardinia is a huge island. It's the second largest island in the Mediterranean. This is after Sicily and it's beautiful and wild and filled with sheep, three times as many sheep as humans, lots of important pork traditions, a fantastic sweets culture, incredible pasta, including fragula, which is like a pearl couscous, a tradition dating back to the Middle Ages. It's an historic place that most people see in, you know, on social media, on the internet, uh, as being a a beach destination, but it has so much more. And there are ancient archaeological sites, pre-Roman neuragic sites that are the coolest, And it's also, I mean, it's a place that I think is not as monument heavy as, let's say, Rome or Venice. There aren't 10,000 museums in three square miles. But what you gain is a more slow-paced immersion in the various Sardinian cultures because it is such a large island. There are many different cultures within it. And, you know, it's difficult to prioritize at times when you see just all the beautiful things that Sardinia has to offer. But uh, an itinerary that I really like is uh, heading to Nuoro, which is this inland city off the the eastern coast. And Nuoro is the capital of the Barbaggio, which is a very wild region with great food traditions um, and a kind of rebellious streak. Um, Visiting Oliena, uh, Orgozolo, other inland towns, which are just stunningly beautiful and have important pasta traditions. And then heading to the coast nearby, hiking, if that's your thing, renting a boat, if that's your thing, or just kind of lounging on a pebble beach uh, to enjoy the beautiful beaches that attract many visitors, but far away from the kind of garish development of the northeastern part of Sardinia, the the coast of Smeralda, which most people are, are familiar with that they've visited. You mentioned all the sheep, and of course, the first thing that comes to my mind when we talk about sheep is uh, sheep's milk cheese. Talk a little bit about the cheese of Sardinia, because you talk about it in your book and makes my mouth water. We're not just talking uh, pecorino. What kinds of cheeses are we talking about? Well, a lot of the cheeses are pecorino, technically, because pecorino just means sheep's milk cheese. So while there is some cow's milk uh, Cheese production, the majority is pecorino, um, with like the little footnote that 97% of pecorino romano is actually made in Sardinia. Um, But you have a range of different pecorino cheeses that are aged in different styles. The production of the cheese is happening at a certain uh, total titratable acid range that affects the final flavor, that affects the texture of the curds. And so even though there are literally hundreds of different types of pecorino in Sardinia. They can have really beautiful expression and nuance due to what the animals are eating. They're often grazing on, you know, a salad of wild greens. And the way that the cheese is produced, the temperature of fermentation, the type of inoculation, and uh, the sort of acidic environment that's happening during the during the process. And what's so great about Sardinian cheese is that it is often 
used in sweets. And I actually just made uh, seadas, which are these ravioli uh, with a lard-based dough. They are four, or even if you're lucky, five inches in diameter, um, filled with cheese, and then you fry them, ideally in lard, and then drench them in, uh, in honey. And that's kind of the signature sweet that people on the mainland are most familiar with. Um, although there are many other examples of cheesy deliciousness on the island. <laughs> wow, that sounds amazing. Let's talk about these uh, pecorino, these uh, different expressions of pecorino, as as you uh, put it. What would be some that we would run across? It, I guess maybe the question should be, is there any that we would run across in a market in the U.S.? Are, are there any well-known ones that we could actually find if we went to a, uh, a Whole Foods or maybe a gourmet Italian market that actually make it over the Atlantic and people can enjoy it? Or is it really, hey, you've got to go to Sardinia if you want to try these? You'll find the major uh, appellation. So when I say that, I mean like uh, Pecorino Romano is a dop, um, which implies that the name of the cheese is also its location and style of production. You also have Fiore Sardo and uh, Pecorino Sardo. Those you'll find in Whole Foods and and other uh, cheese shops with an Italian selection for sure. Um, Finding other cheeses um, can be a little bit of a challenge, although there is this place with a very silly name, I know, um, the Beverly Hills Cheese Shop. It's in Beverly Hills. <laughs> um, and it's got this incredible curated selection of Sardinian cheeses, but only because the owner really goes through uh, jumping through hoops to import the cheese. It's it's challenging to move dairy products across the ocean into the United States. Sure, It's not as though you're going to find a huge range of Sardinian cheeses in North America. But then again... When I go to the supermarket or to the cheese shop here, I don't find a huge range of Sardinian cheeses either. It's a matter of going to the island, visiting and asking about what the local cheese uh, situation is. Uh, And that's how you get to experience Sardinian cheeses. So more of my agenda to get you to go to Sardinia. You know, for me, that's what travel's all about anyway. It's like, what is the local thing that I'm going to be enjoying here, whether it's, you know, whether it's a cheese, whether it's pasta, whether it's a style of coffee, whatever it is. So there you go. Totally. Uh, get, get the ticket, go to Sardinia. Um, so, so now with our cheese, one of the recipes that is, we talk about this simple cuisine in Italy and Sardinia, and one of the things that I saw in your book that really kind of struck my taste buds was the... Uh, Pane frittao. Um, can you talk about yeah. this? Because you do use some uh, Sardinian cheese on this recipe. Yeah, so pane frittao is a dish that's made from soaking pane carasau, which is a twice-baked cheese. Think of it kind of like a pita, um, but with the thinner layers. And then when you cook pita in the oven, it, it balloons up. And if you took that pita out of the oven and, and bisected it into two sheets and then baked those sheets again, it would be very crispy and brittle. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it kind of reminds me of like fatouche in a way, um, uh, that salad with like the pita strips. Um, but the pane frittao is made by taking the sort of dry, deliberately dried out pane carousel, soaking it ideally in mutton broth. You could do veggie broth too. And then spooning over uh, eggs, cooked in tomato sauce and then hitting it with a healthy 
dusting of pecorino. And this is, this could be a starter. It could be a main dish. And it's one of the, it's one of the dishes that in Sardinia, in fact, transcends regional distinctions. There are many pasta shapes or breads or recipes that you only find in one place. Whereas you find the cheese, sweet, the, the cheese ravioli with honey, seada uh, that I mentioned earlier, you find that everywhere. And you find pane frattao in many places as well. It's become kind of like a pan Sardinian dish. It's very good. Bread, eggs cooked in tomato, tons of pecorino. Oh my God. <laughs> that is, oh, unreal. Um, I, so I want to talk about some of these other recipes from Sardinia that you've got in your book. And I'm going to say right up front, you're going to have to excuse my pronunciation because my Italian was never great. And now that I'm trying to learn Portuguese, um, <laughs> it's just become this mis- mishmash of uh, languages that are that have a terrible um, Midwest American accent. So bear with me. Feel free to correct me because it's going to get ugly here. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so just know that going in. Okay. <laughs> um, the first one I want to talk about is Culogiones uh, con Broi Salvia. You almost got right. it so close. Culogione. Culogione. Um, love this idea of the uh, potato and cheese dumpling. Talk a little bit about it, please, Katie. Culogiones are having a moment. I've actually been seeing them on menus all over Australia and uh, the U.S. And they are parcels. Think of them as as dumplings, right? They're dumplings that are filled with a potato, garlic, mint, and pecorino filling. And they're pinched together. They almost look like a a big swollen teardrop shape. They're pinched together so that uh, the closure looks like an ear of wheat, right? So at the end of like a a stalk of wheat, you've got the um, wheat berries sort of all lined up in a row. And it's meant to sort of evoke that uh, look. And Coulardjones, um, in my particular version, are inspired by one preparation in particular particular that goes real heavy on the cheese. Um, so rather than the cheese being uh, a supporting role, it's it's kind of like a co co star with the potatoes, um, and that's uh, that's inspired by one place in particular, Ovile Bertarelli, which is this um, working farm and restaurant in the forest. Uh, in eastern Sardinia, southeastern Sardinia, and it's uh, it's just wonderful. And because the filling has so much flavor, um, serving it with a butter and sage sauce is something I like to do. You could also serve it with tomato sauce if you'd like, but I do like a I do like a butter and sage situation. And it's hearty, right? It's basically it reminds me so much of my Polish grandmother's pirogi. You might have read in the book that I have a lot of grandparents and great grandparents from Sicily, but I've also got a Polish side, and that really, the potato aspect really speaks to me. (laughs) You're killing me. Oh, man, this sounds so good. I I want to visit that restaurant like today. Get an all Korean vehicle first. Uh, Okay. All right. Very well. (laughs) When when you say uh, you've got a a potato base with uh, butter and sage sauce, it makes me think of, you know, gnocchi. Uh, in a butter and sage sauce. Any similarity there? I mean, potato was an easy ingredient to cellar. Um, and potatoes are present in Southern and Island cuisines because they come from the Americas and were introduced to those territories by the Spanish who controlled those uh, parts of Italy until the uh, mid to late 19th century. 
And potatoes, because of their easy, easy cellaring potential, plus their caloric impact, they were often introduced into pastas, sometimes even sweets. It's a pretty common characteristic of carb-based dishes in the islands in the south. Let's uh, talk a little bit more about pasta, because you mentioned the siadas, uh, the uh, cheese-filled ravioli that gets soaked in honey. Um, what about the famous spiral pasta in Sardinia? That looks incredible too. So uh, the one that is a series of interlocking rings or the curly one? The curly one. So that's something that's that really speaks to the cosmopolitan nature of Sardinian communities, especially coastal communities. And I referenced earlier that there wasn't a ton of fishing, but there is an island um, off the southwestern coast, and the main village there is called Carloforte. And if you're familiar with different types of canned tuna brands, Carloforte will be a familiar name to you because there's been a tuna cannery there for centuries, and uh, and still it's a, a tuna uh, tinning place. And it was settled by people from Liguria, so think Genova, where they also make similar sort of fusilli or trophie pasta that's curly. And so these people went from Liguria to Tunisia. They were coral fishermen. And then when the coral supplies dried up, they were lost. They needed some place to settle. And uh, a, a king at the time who was ruling over Sardinia gave them this island. And they created a community there and brought their food traditions which included pesto made in the Ligurian way. So when you think of pesto uh, in Italy, it actually takes a ton of different forms. There are dozens of different types, but the most famous, the one that has global uh, fame is the one from Genova. So you find that pesto uh, with basil and garlic and cheese and uh, pine nuts produced in that island, as well as trophie pasta. You know, this is uh, what I really love about your book, Katie, is you've got... You've got recipes in there, sure. I mean, at its heart, I guess it's a cookbook, but also you've got this history and these great stories. And then you've also got really wonderful, evocative pictures in there. And when I think about the pictures in your book, one of the things that springs to my mind in Sardinia especially is the pictures of the uh, decorative breads that they make in Sardinia. Um, These intricate patterns that they put into the breads, it looks almost like they're carved out of ivory. They're absolutely stunning. Talk a little bit about the bread tradition in Sardinia, if you could. It's insane. It's absolutely bananas. And uh, it's pretty common to spray the bread before baking it and uh, create sort of a steam layer so it doesn't take color. So it does look like marble or ivory. And traditionally in Sardinian cultures, uh, bread was used as a votive offering um, to a saint. Um, It was used in all sorts of altars and could also be produced in order to celebrate um, an occasion like a wedding. And this is durum wheat, so the hard wheat that makes semolina and farina di semolari macinata. Um, And it's mixed with water. It's a medium, low hydration dough that's then manipulated using... Uh, your hands to massage the dough into floral patterns or with metal, uh, especially brass pinchers and tools to create textures. Um, And on page 180 of the book, there's a feature that talks about these different types of bread. And there's so many, it's 
it's actually overwhelming. Um, what's very cool is that many of these breads, historic breads that are no longer produced with the same enthusiasm because of dwindling populations or changing traditions, are actually displayed in museums. And while I mentioned wow. that you know Sardinia isn't always like the most monument-heavy place, it's not packed with 10,000 museums in every city, so many villages have... Um, sort of cultural history museums that display the the garments and the kitchen tools and the, even the breads that people produced in that area. And these are incredible documents that showcase astounding talent. A bread museum. That's an idea I can get behind. <laughs> Let, let's, get a, let's get a bread museum going inside. Just, just bread. That's it. Bread museum. And then, um, you know, and then we would have the best freaking bakery in the world <laughs> uh, downstairs. Absolutely. <laughs> so what kind, of, what kind of bread are we talking about? Is it uh, sour? You said there's all kinds of different ones, but uh, the basic tradition, what are we talking about? Is it sourdough or what, what, are we, what are we talking here? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it has a very small amount of uh, natural leavening, for sure. Um, you don't necessarily even have to use yeast in it because the bread is not meant to have an incredible rise because then the um, the yeast, when you put the bread in the oven, would continue to produce carbon dioxide. It would it would deform the shapes that you've created. And so it's, it's bread that sometimes has natural leavening, sometimes uh, active dry or instant yeast, but is not really supposed to rise, um, which is really interesting if you think about it, because you can completely eliminate the yeast factor and produce a bread that looks the same. And I, I have kind of like, I don't know, a theory um, that this bread was supposed to kind of be viable bread, but that it was more ornamental than uh, nutritional that's fascinating. Uh, you know, it becomes more of an art, a work of art than a work of cuisine, although it's both in this case. You see these intricate decorative patterns on the breads, and I'm just wondering, do they have a specific meaning? Is it to show who the artist themselves is, or is it just an artistic expression, or is it indicate what ingredients it is are inside or not inside, but in the uh, recipe, like an empanada, maybe will tell you what's inside based on what the stamp is on the, uh, on the dough. Is there any reason behind these? The ornamental breads sometimes are reinforcing the bread nature, right? By having ears of wheat. So sometimes the bread uh, sculptor will make these and place them on the bread. Sometimes they'll just have tiny wheat berries kind of reinforcing not just the the flour-based nature, but the fact that grain was part of religious ritual. You've got, of course, the host, body of Christ, and all of these Catholic traditions that are really tied up in uh, the idea of bread. Um, and these are, I mean, they are so artistic. But I think if we're putting them in their historical context, they are religious devotional items and whether it's bread or intricate pasta, you have this almost like meditative ritual involved in their creation because they are so time consuming and they're using a resource that's actually quite precious. Now flour is 80 cents a kilo at the supermarket, but flour used to be a, a precious resource and people didn't have fresh bread every day. So using a, a, a something of that value um, and donating it to a saint 
using it in some sort of uh, votive or ex voto um, was a, a, a religious act and not exclusively an artistic one. I mean, I'm not, I don't think being hyperbolic here when I uh, draw a, a comparison to the Sistine Chapel, where clearly it's a work of artistic uh, genius, but it's right, also right. depicting Genesis. <laughs> like, it's not just Michelangelo freestyling for the fun of it. He was creating a series of images that were meant to reinforce biblical messages and the message of the church. Mikey to the A freestyling. <laughs> um, the, uh, it, it really is kind of blowing my mind when you put it in those terms, Katie, because I'm thinking of Sardinia as for centuries, probably as a, as a relatively poor place and wheat flour being difficult to process, labor-intensive, difficult to get enough, and we're hungry in Sardinia, however many hundreds of years ago, and instead of just freaking making bread and eating, we're making these uh, devotionals to the church. It's, it's, really, it's really quite astounding when you think about it in those terms. Thanks for, uh, thanks for sharing that with us. I would add that there were very wealthy parts of Sardinia, absolutely, and Alghero is a village, well, a city in the northwestern part of the island that you can visit today. And it, it feel, you can feel the presence of wealth and culture that would have been there during the peak of Spanish dominion, without a doubt. Cagliari has a similar vibe. Let's move uh, to the Bay of Naples because, you know, I consider, I consider this area to be one of the big four in Italy. Everyone wants to, uh, you know, fly into Rome, see Rome, and then bomb down to the Amalfi Coast, and the first place, first thing they do is they hop on a boat and they fly out to uh, Capri and, you know, enjoy that island. It's wonderful, it's, uh, but it's also very touristy. There's other islands in the Bay of Naples as well, and you devote a fair amount of time in your book to uh, the Bay of Naples. Do you want to start with Capri and then talk about the other islands as well? I mean, Capri is a place that as I mentioned before, was developed for British, American, and German no nobility, essentially ballers from those places <laughs> with a, a, a touristic idea in mind. And it's undeniably beautiful, but does it have the, the depth of culture? Does it have the agricultural tradition that you find in Ischia or Procida? It can't. It wasn't developed for that purpose. And the Amalfi Coast is very remote. It's only now that people can go there more easily, but it's not even that easy to get to in the grand scheme of things. It requires some effort. So what I really love to do is skip Capri altogether. You know what? Because I can get the things I love from Capri, Caprese salad and the flowerless <laughs> chocolate cake. Uh, or to you can go to freaking <laughs> App Applebee's and get a Caprese salad if you want. Well, this one, the one I'm thinking about has good mozzarella. Okay. You can get right. the, on, on the neighboring islands, Ischia and Procida. And from Rome, it's an hour train ride to Naples. And then it's a fast hydrofoil ride to Procida or Ischia, which are both spectacular and super cool and have way more... Uh, Italian visitors than Capri. So you get, and, you know, this is a loaded word, of course, but you get more of an authentic experience. And, and Iski is a place where like real live locals actually live and do business and have their homes and their land. And so it's a, it's a place that feels like it's alive 
And Capri is alive from Easter until like October 31st. Then it died. Mm-hmm. It's actually really cool out of season, but uh, but it's yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking, man, I'm going to go there. <laughs> I'm going to go there for Christmas. Um, so what is the culinary tradition of, of these two islands, uh, Ischia and uh, Procida? Well, they're very much influenced by Naples because Naples was is a massively populated city. And for uh, the better part of its modern history, it was a very wealthy, prestigious place. The cuisines of Procida and Ischia, therefore, have a lot of influence from that mainland city. But Ischia also has its signature dishes, um, the most famous of which is probably coniglio all'ischitana, which is a braised rabbit dish that's um, reproduced enthusiastically in trattoria all across the island. You often have to uh, order it uh, in advance, like reserve it in advance before turning up. Um, and that's an Ischia classic. I'm obsessed with this dish, and it really speaks to like the land-based nature of island cuisine in a, a very present way. I want to talk a little bit about an island that's not too far from you off the coast of Lazio. When we think of Rome, which is in Lazio, we don't think of islands, but, you know, you go to the coast and you can go to this island called uh, Ponza, which I've never been to. Um, first of all, is, is Ponza easy to get to from Rome? Is this a, something we could do in a day trip, say? It's a little tight in a day trip. Um, so there's, there is a port. So one hour train right away called Anzio. If you can get to Anzio and then you can walk, you know, 10 minutes to the port and get on a boat, you can go to approach, you can go to Ponza and be back within the day, but you don't really get to experience the island. I always recommend two or three nights on the island. Uh, Anzio, however, during the pandemic um, had its port kind of neglected. They didn't dredge it. So it was difficult to, re- to move boats out. So at least when I was trying to go there over the summer to shoot the book, uh, I couldn't go through that route. So it's a little bit longer, but you can go down to Formia, Gaeta area, and then take the boat from there. Um, but it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a little too much for just a day trip. Ponza doesn't have many beaches. Um, and so the best way to explore it is by renting a little dinghy, which is very, very simple to do. There are tons of places in the port that will rent you one, whether you have any boating experience or not. <laughs> and then you can uh, go drop anchor in these spectacular volcanic coves with, with huge cliffs um, that you know reach down to this pristine water. Uh, it's absolutely spectacular. And one of my favorite restaurants on the planet, La Marina, uh, is there in a village called Le Forna. The easiest way to get there is is by boat, though. Let's talk about the famous, that you talk about in your book, the famous grass pea soup in Panza, because you point, you painted a very nice picture of uh, of this. So tell me a little bit about the grass pea soup. What's involved here? I, I don't even think I know what grass pea soup means specifically. It look okay, so grass peas, cicerche in Italian, look like chickpeas. But I think they're more like genetically related to fava beans. Um, okay. And they, again, speak to the land-based nature of island cuisine. They would be harvested and then dried and could be reconstituted in soup, providing a lot of protein, tons of flavor, and also a vegan option and gluten-free. Um, so you've got this like legume-based stew. You just kind of like hammer the the chick the chicherkia until they fall apart uh, after building a sofrito with onions and celery and carrots. 
let it rock at low heat, simmer it until everything just sort of like melts. And it's so, so simple and so delicious. Uh, if there are any listeners who love soup, this book is for you. There's a whole chapter dedicated to it. And often the recipes are that simple. It's like build a sofrito, add some liquid and the legumes, whether it's lentils or grass peas, and then just like hammer it until you can't tell what it is. And those really deep flavors that come out when you cook uh, legumes like this are something I so heavily identify with the islands. And I remember the first time I had uh, chicherkie soup was uh, probably, well, at least the first time I had it in Ponza was over 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. And I hiked up to this like really remote little trattoria that was also a, a an agricultural museum. And I looked at the menu and I was like, where's all the fish? Like what's going on here? At that time I hadn't really studied island food as uh, intensely. And they're like, well, we got, we got the soup and we got the eel. So <laughs> the eel's the seafood. Take your pick lady. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was a, it was a great crash course in the way that people uh, on the island have historically eaten. Was this restaurant uh, Da Gerardo that you talked about in your book? Da Gerardo. I almost killed my photographer and myself trying to get there on it with a car. So I would discourage anyone from putting it in your GPS if you're on Ponza. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I would just try to get a boat there. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> or get the four-wheeler, but man, yeah, your Ford Focus ain't going to make it up there. Not so much. Well, this has just been great, but you know, we've only scratched the surface and we definitely got to talk about Sicily. So uh, I want to have you back next week is going to be St. Patrick's Day. So I'm going to do an episode on Ireland. Katie, would you come back in two weeks and talk a little bit more about your book, Food of the Italian Islands? Because we, we got to cover Sicily and we got to talk about Venice. I mean, two of the major places that people visit. So uh, two weeks from now, can we make it a date? Let's do it. Okay, there you go. It's always fun talking to Katie. And like I said, we'll have her back in two weeks for more stories about Italy and Italian food. Katie's latest book, Food of the Italian Islands, is out now. In fact, Katie is currently on a book tour in the U.S., so if you want to meet Katie, you can check out the dates at katieparla.com. I've also got links to Katie's website and other stuff we talked about in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash ded223. Well, that'll put a bow on this week's show next week, St. Paddy's Day. So we got to celebrate with the best of Ireland on the podcast. Don't miss that. Until then, get over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I just posted a story about a rustic little winery in Portugal with a history dating back almost 10,000 years. Get that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash Alcube. That's A-L-C-U-B-E. Or just go to DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and a guy who pairs his grass pea soup with scotch, Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.